Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Thousands are expected to attend a ceremony today at the National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City, Missouri. It was 100 years ago on April 6, 1917, when the U.S. officially entered the Great War. Coming up, we'll hear how state residents have joined a digital archive project led by the Connecticut State Library to mark the 100th anniversary. Who were the Americans who fought in World War I? Three million men were drafted, two million volunteered men and women. They included 350,000 African Americans, such as the Harlem Hellfighters. That's the name the Germans gave them, an all-black combat regiment. We'll hear about the Hellfighters and the immigrants who fought too, from well-known historian and author Richard Slotkin, also professor of history at Western University. He's written many books, including Lost Battalions, The Great War, and The Crisis of American Nationality. We'll find out why it took the nation decades to posthumously award a Purple Heart and later a Medal of Honor to Army Private Henry Johnson, a black soldier considered one of the greatest heroes of World War I. First, joining me in studio now is Edward Gutierrez. He's a Hartford native, now a history professor at Northeastern University, and the author of Doughboys on the Great War, How American Soldiers Viewed Their Military Experience. Edward, welcome to the show. Uh, nice to be here. So we are... Um, Pay attention to World War One because of the 100-year anniversary. When did you begin to be interested in the Great War? Hmm. That was a very long time ago. I'd, honestly, it was probably Snoopy. Uh, most <laughs> kids my generation would remember from the comic strips and the, the films uh, seeing Snoopy uh, fighting the Red Baron on his uh, on his uh, little uh, doghouse there. But I think as I got older, it became more apparent to me of why no one paid attention to it at all. I think in this country we have such a a love a love for the Civil War and World War II, and, and the Great War just gets sandwiched between that. And I was really starting to question is, why does no one care? Why does no one really know anything about this war? Uh, in this country, it's certainly different for British and, and the French, but uh, here we just don't seem to have a real interest, and I think that's that's unfortunate, but it's also important that we should have an interest. You're a history professor, so you're used to people. If as we get further and further yeah. away from events uh, sure. uh, that are important, we tend to just ignore it or forget about the significance. Yeah, I think it's within our. It's really human nature to kind of be very focused on just ourselves. And uh, unfortunately, I think the more time goes on with things like uh, Facebook and such, we tend to focus even more on ourselves. And that's just again, that's nothing significant or, or specific to us, but. Uh, certainly in this country, again, I think it's just because of the bitter taste from that war. World War I has a very opaque narrative. It, it, it's, it's not as clear-cut as the Civil War or as World War II. Uh, it's more like a Vietnam for us where we're very bitter about that. And, and it's just not as interesting, I think, to people because you say the Civil War. Well, it was a just cause. It, we're fighting over slavery. Mm -hmm. uh, World War II, you were trying to stop the Nazis uh, in Pearl Harbor. I mean, it's very clear cut of good guys and bad guys, whereas World War One much more gray uh, and, and much different. 
Your interest goes beyond uh, just knowing uh, the significant battles and the facts and figures. Mm-hmm. You wanted to understand uh, the thoughts behind the soldiers, mm-hmm. uh, the ones who volunteered, who yeah. didn't wait to be drafted, sure. and then what it was like for them right. afterward. Right. Tell us what motivated, um, when you, what, what did you find out about you know, why some of them volunteered? Well, uh, for me, again, I'm, I'm, I would say, again, I'm a student of human nature, not history, so it's always, I've always been interested in the human condition. And I think it's so relevant now, uh, more than ever, uh, especially post 9-11 with Iraq, Afghanistan, and who knows what the future is going to hold of why men and women fight, why do they go to the war. And that really interested me, I think, again, just in the context of a national identity and as Americans. And what, you, what I was really s- stunned to see, uh, with, with, I will say with great humility, is, is the immense passion and motivation, whether they were enlisted or drafted, there was a sense of duty, a sense of honor. Certainly propaganda played a role. There was a lot of the old reasons, adventure and such, but overall it was duty. This is why the men and women of American uh, World War I generation served. Mm. You write about this idea of the lost generation. Tell us what you mean. Well, the lost generation was originally started in France with the Generation Perdue, and this idea of I think, it, unfortunately, it's it's still, and I'm working to debunk this myth, but it still really defines the war for Americans, that it's all just so dark, so damaging, and so devastating. And if you look at most syllabi college, especially in high school, I mean, what filter do we know the war? It's Hemingway. It's these lost generation authors, Dos Passos, Faulkner, uh, Fitzgerald, uh, certainly who's still in the limelight with, there's a new, I know, a new series about Zelda Fitzgerald. So... Those are unfortunate because I think we tend to latch on to interesting voices. Uh, These are writers. They're very creative. Most of the lost generation, the names I just mentioned, they weren't combatants. They did not see the front. Uh, They were ambulance drivers. They didn't even get across the pond, as they said. Faulkner was here. Fitzgerald was here. So I think it's unfortunate because that has really created uh, our understanding of the war and really mythologized it to be such a dark bitter conflict, but it's not the case. And it's easy when uh, people who have not fought, we hear about this from veterans of today, the public likes to generalize and say, well, if you go to war, you must come back broken. And that's not always the case. No, certainly not. I think it, as I really write about in the book, we've really done a 180 in 100 years. When you came home from the war, if you were broken, then something was wrong with you. And now it's honestly, it's, it's different. If you are not broken coming home from war, that must be something wrong with you. And that's just not, that's not the war that most veterans that I talk to, uh, regardless of the conflict, it's just not that experience. And again, I think that sometimes, honestly, I think it's society that has the problem rather than the ex-servicemen or women who's coming home. Because we, again, we create our own, we construct what we think is the way it really is. And that's just, that's, that's wrong. And what I really try to do in the book is rather than having other voices speak, I let the veterans speak themselves, because that's the truth. This is where we live. We're speaking with Edward Gutierrez, history professor at Northeastern University, a Hartford native, author of Doughboys on the Great War, How American Soldiers Viewed Their Military Experience. And you can join the conversation this hour, 860-275-7266, as we uh, reflect on the 100 years since the U.S. entry into World War I, uh, today, April 6th. Uh, so you wanted to find out more about the human condition and what um, these soldiers went through, what they uh, felt when they came home. 
How did you go about doing that? Where did you find the records that <laughs> were the basis of your book? Well, uh, that, that's a great question. Honestly, it it's, was really a divine intervention. I was, uh, I was working at the uh, State Library when I was going to Trinity for my master's, and I knew I needed uh, some primary source documents, and I happened to have access to the vault, and there's these great questionnaires uh, that were done right after the war. Uh, it's this kind of exit interview that we just can't have uh, with these soldiers. So I found these, uh, brought it to my advisor, uh, Borden Painter at Trinity, and he mm-hmm. says, oh, you've got, you've got something, you've got a gold mine here. And that just kept growing and growing after I went for my doctorate uh, into something much bigger, and I made sure that I went to every single state to find these questionnaires. Mm. So these questionnaires, uh, Connecticut and some other states were more mm-hmm. specific in what they were asking. Correct. Why was that? Oh, that's a great, there's the great question. Uh, it took me a very long time, many years, to, to, to find that out. Uh, what it comes down to is that these, these uh, few states, really four in particular, that did these questionnaires, it was really um, an initiative, which I think uh, one of our later guests, uh, Ken, will probably talk about, uh, men like uh, George Goddard or these, these kind of uh, individuals right at, during the war that had kind of history on the brain. Uh, because it was not a federal initiative, so that's why we don't have every state with these, mm-hmm. uh, these wonderful documents. Why do you think some of these, and you poured through, you went to all the states, you yeah. poured through the, the surveys that were actually filled out in mm-hmm. detail, why do you think some of these men were comfortable feeling candid? Uh, I think it, you, you get a mixture. I mean, certainly there's a few on there that, that, they're, that, that say, uh, am, I, am I enlisting again here? Because they don't want to certainly fill out the form for that reason. But I think a lot of them were very candid because they knew it was something with, it says right on the form, this is, this is for posterity, this is for history. And I think so men uh, jotted down these, these, these answers to very difficult questions. Uh, and uh, they were very honest about it, which obviously is invaluable to to, to us, I think, not only historians, but anyone. Can you tell me um, a couple of the soldiers from Connecticut? Mm-hmm. Tell me what, uh, tell a little bit about them and what you found out in these surveys. Oh, sure. Uh, the great thing, uh, Connecticut is different from some of the other surveys like Virginia or Utah or Minnesota. I think Connecticut, you get a lot of the uh, highly educated uh, individuals, uh, men from Yale, uh, Trinity, Wesleyan, and and kind of very much gung-ho. I'm, I'm, I can't wait to see what it's like. I was very excited to go. But you also get a lot of immigrants. Uh, we had, uh, at the time, very large immigration population, especially Italians, uh, some Polish, uh, Russians. And they, you really see in these, these men, I mean, these, these men are here right off the boat, basically. Mm-hmm. And they are extremely enthusiastic to fight for, for um, the American flag in this country. Uh, one of those men, Italian-American private Nicola Andriozzi. And Andriozzi, uh, yes. From yes. New Haven. Yes, yes. Do you remember what he, what he wrote? Oh, yes. Uh, I certainly do because he wrote in Italian, and he wrote in an Italian that uh, my, my Italian's decent, but I, I certainly needed some, some help uh, from a good friend uh, to translate because it was very colloquial uh, Italian. And so he writes his entire questionnaire in Italian, apologizing that he can't write in English, uh, and really saying about how how much he was so excited to, to fight for America, for the flag. Uh, 
uh, for, for kind of forgotten country. Uh, so very enthusiastic. And his wife didn't want him to go. And mm -hmm. it was, it's a great little story. There's also a, a man by the name of Raymond J. Queenan of New Britain. Mm -hmm. uh, he wrote, I was anxious to go. I wanted to see what war was like and did. I would have been ashamed to have been drafted. I saw the need and didn't believe in waiting for a personal invitation. Yeah. That was a sentiment, uh, as I was reading earlier in the show, um, I believe uh, two million volunteered to serve. Quite, it's quite a few. I mean, more certainly were drafted, but there was a lot of volunteers. Uh, again, a lot of immigrants, especially the numbers vary, uh, but uh, several hundred thousand, um, maybe perhaps Polish. But there was there was a lot of immigrants, uh, but all kinds, African-Americans, uh, Native Americans, uh, Latinos, uh, whites as well. So it was a, there was a lot of enthusiasm. And there's certainly a mixture there uh, between a, a lot of the propaganda. But also, as I really stress, it was a real there was a sense of duty there that made these men enlist. And they also highlighted the tragedy of war, um, mm -hmm. uh, reciting the quote from uh, mm -hmm. General William Sherman, mm -hmm. war is hell. Of course. Um, were you surprised at all when, when you read some of those remarks? Yes. I think it w really shocked me because I went through all, I mean, hundreds of thousands of these uh, and until uh, my hands went numb. And I did see a connection, not only of Connecticut men, but Virginia, Utah. It, it was universal. Quoting Sherman was right. Uh, he had given this very famous speech in 1888 in Columbus, Ohio, uh, where, uh, and I s reference it in the book, but uh, they all, they said, uh, to some extent, quoting Sherman, Sherman was right, war is hell, as you said. Uh, but I think the important thing to note is that, yes, it was hell, but they were, they were proud of that service, and uh, they wouldn't trade it in, I believe, as one gentleman said, uh, for, for millions of dollars and, and things of that nature. We mentioned earlier, too, that Connecticut was one of just uh, three or four states that mm -hmm. had these detailed questionnaires. Has anyone else uh, done what you did, which is write a book based on uh, and what, these, what these men said? There was a few uh, that used pieces of them from Virginia and Connecticut, but nothing. I mean, those were just a couple. Uh, I was very fortunate because I think eventually someone would have connected the dots. Uh, I have a lot of thanks for uh, Jeffrey Parker, my PhD advisor, who made sure no stone left unturned. So, you know, going to every single state and making sure uh, that I found every single questionnaire. So some genealogists and some other scholars had used them a little bit, but uh, no one had done, you know, read every single one and gone through every single one, no. I'm speaking to historian Ed, Edward Gutierrez. He's a history professor at Northeastern University, author of the book Doughboys on the Great Ex War, How American Soldiers Viewed Their Military Experience. Today, April 6th, marks 100 years since the U.S. entered World War I. Coming up, we'll learn more about the African Americans, the immigrants who fought proudly for the United States. What did their service mean to them? I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about the Great War today. 100 years ago, April 6th, the U.S. entered a war many Americans had thought was Europe's war to fight. But concerns about threats to U.S. interests led then-President Woodrow Wilson to ask for a declaration of war to, quote, make the world safe for democracy. Those words resonated with Americans, including African Americans. But historian Henry Louis Gates Jr. wrote the president's words, quote, smacked of hypocrisy to some blacks who lived in parts of the country where lynchings still took place. Still many African Americans volunteered to enlist. Immigrants did, too. Our next guest can tell us more about why blacks and immigrants volunteered to fight during a time when they were viewed as second-class citizens in America.
Joining us by phone now is Richard Slotkin, Professor Emeritus of English and American Studies at Wesleyan University. He's a well-known historian and author of many books, including Lost Battalions, The Great War, and The Crisis of American Nationality. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you. And I wanted to just also remark in studio with us is Edward Gutierrez, history professor at Northeastern University, a Hartford native, author of Doughboys on the Great War, How American Soldiers Viewed Their Military Experience. Uh, Richard, I'll go back to you. Take us back to the 20th century. Uh, Tell us again about what was happening in terms of how Americans were viewing uh, immigrants and African Americans. Yes, okay, the uh, the 30-year period right before we got into World War One is maybe the worst point in American race relations, uh, certainly since the Civil War. It's the period when the Jim Crow system uh, of laws and practices is being established in the South, where you have uh, segregation in all spheres of life, depriving blacks of the right to vote, uh, and uh, the use of uh, lynching to terrorize the uh, the black population. Uh, uh, an average of uh, four lynchings uh, uh, a week for a period of about 30 years. Um, uh, it's also a period when there's huge immigration to the United States from, con- from uh, places in Europe that had never sent people in any numbers here before, particularly from Eastern and Southern Europe. And so you get a, a reaction against immigration, uh, as well. Uh, and it's interesting that the leadership in that uh, uh, reaction is, are the progressives, uh, the Theodore Roosevelt School of, of Progressives. There's an organization called the Immigration Restriction League, and there's a quotation from uh, Lawrence Lowell, the president of Harvard and the president of the League, that sums up the, the, uh, the state of race relations in, in 1917. Lowell wrote, Indians, Negroes, Chinese, Jews, and Americans cannot all be free in the same society. Uh, so that's where you stand in 1917. The war comes, and uh, really, uh, the United States is completely unprepared, and they, it takes them uh, a, f- a few months to realize that they cannot raise an army of, uh, of, of two million unless they get the full cooperation of uh, the minority communities, both black uh, and immigrants. And so uh, there's a, a reversal uh, led by government propaganda uh, produced by the uh, Committee on Public Information, which, pr- which really rewrites the script of what it means to be an American. Uh, and uh, uh, soldier, uh, here's, a, here's a quote, uh, soldier after soldier is to be turned out fit and eager to fight for liberty under the stars and stripes, mindful of the traditions of his race, and the land of his nativity, and conscious of the principles for which he is fighting. In other words, that America is now uh, going to be uh, a, a community of, uh, of, of, of different races and nationalities, all of whom are united by belief in American ideals. And uh, the leaders of the immigrant communities uh, and of the black community take this as a kind of implied promise that if you serve and serve well, uh, in war, that uh, you will be uh, granted something like full civil equality uh, when the war is over. So even a, a black radical like W.E.B. Mm. Du Bois says, uh, if this is our country, then this is our war. We must fight it with every ounce of blood and treasure. And then he says, first your country, then your rights. That is, first fight the war, first serve the country. 
and then your country will grant you your uh, grant you your rights. Uh, and as a result, the uh, the uh, immigrants do turn out. Um, uh, blacks and uh, the, the, I, I don't have the exact figures on African American uh, enrollment, but it's well beyond their uh, uh, proportion of the population, which is about 15 percent. For immigrants, uh, Jews and Italians uh, constituted something like 2% of the population and 4, 4 to 6% of the troops who actually went to France. Mm. Uh, so the, the, uh, the, the turnout is, uh, is really quite substantial. Now, your book, uh, Richard, you talk specifically about the 369th Infantry, the fabled Harlem Hellfighters, also right. the legendary 77th Lost Battalion uh, composed of New York City immigrants. Tell us about them. Okay. Uh, well, the, uh, the, uh, the, the original Lost, the, the Lost Battalion was a, a, from the 308th Infantry. The, uh, the units were formed uh, regionally uh, as they were trying to organize, and the 77th Division was formed really in, uh, in the greater New York area. And uh, it, it consisted, uh, it, it's, it was nicknamed was the Melting Pot uh, Division because it had so many Jews, Italians, Poles, uh, even Chinese uh, were included in the uh, the unit, uh, and uh, they fought uh, uh, with the American Army, and a uh, the 300 a uh, couple of battalions of the 308th were cut off behind uh, German lines after making a a breakthrough, and they fought for a week, uh, completely surrounded, and suffered something like 75 percent uh, casualties, but refused uh, refused to surrender. And um, were uh, celebrated in the press, and uh, uh, in particular, uh, the uh, the press in New York City said that this proves that that Yiddishers, that is to say, East European Jews, can fight; uh, that they're not uh, a bunch of of uh, what um, pants pressers and uh, sewing machine operators, but they're they're true Americans who can stand up and fight uh, fight well for their country. Um, the 369th, the Harlem Hellfighters, is a, has a more complex history. They started out as the 15th New York National Guard. They were founded really by the, the political strength of the black community of Harlem, uh, were formed but not financed by New York State, so they had to raise the money for their own uniforms and, and, and weapons. And they did it in a couple of ways, uh, a couple of very prominent uh, New York uh, socialites, became commanding officers in the regiment, William Hayward and Hamilton Fish, um, who was uh, uh, from a very, uh, very old American family. But the most important figure was a guy named James Reese Europe, who was the leading black jazz musician and musical entrepreneur of his day. And he formed a regimental band, a jazz band, that was uh, sensational and a great fundraiser for the regiment. And they're actually the band that uh, started the French off on their never-ending craze for American jazz when they went over there. Um, and they were formed, and they were, tree they, were, uh, they were nicknamed the Orphans, or the Les Enfants Perdus, because the American army, having, having <laughs> admitted them, didn't know what to do with them. Uh, they were the first black regiment to be sent to France. Uh, Pershing did not want to put them together with white units. So he gave them to the French army, and they served uh, for the uh, entire war uh, with the French. And this proved to be very lucky for them. Mm. Uh, the French trained them as assault troops. 
uh, used them in the front line. Uh, they spent 191 days in combat, which is one of the longest uh, stints uh, in, in the American Army. Uh, they were awarded a, a unit citation of the Croix de Guerre for, the, uh, for an assault and, 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 def- and kind of a last stand that they fought uh, during the war and uh, did, had a distinguished, uh, distinguished record. And what about Henry Johnson? This is someone I mentioned, the Harlem Hellfighters, this yes. regiment. Uh, Henry Johnson um, getting um, attention the uh, last few years because of being, being the recipient uh, posthumously for the Medal of Honor. Tell us right. about him. Well, the, 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 this is a, here's the peculiarity. His, his fate is linked with the peculiarity of the regiment's standing. It's an American regiment fighting with the French Army. So uh, there's, uh, there, there was a heavy censorship about all news coverage out of the American army. So you could not name a, an American soldier who did something brave or an American unit at, er, early in the war. But there was no such ban on the 369th. And uh, in May 1918, uh, the, there was a, a, an outpost affair. Henry Johnson, who is a, a former red cap from Albany, uh, a private, uh, and Needham Roberts, who is a, an underaged private from Trenton, New Jersey, he, he lied about his age to enlist, were in a, an outpost that was hit by a German raiding party. Most of the, the unit in the uh, outpost with him were trapped in a bunker. Johnson and Roberts had to fight off a, 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 a dozen or, or 20 German soldiers who had come to, to capture them. Uh, they fought hand-to-hand with rifle butts. Uh, Johnson fought with a trench knife. Uh, they killed a dozen of the German attackers and drove off the rest and were essentially themselves shot to pieces, though, though, not, uh, though not killed. And uh, it was one, a, a, a moment of extreme bravery um, for which Johnson and Roberts were given the French medals, the Croix de Guerre. Mm-hmm. Um, because they were with the French, it was possible to write about them. And the commanders of the 369th were, were very uh, committed to seeing that the American public learned that black troops were fighting for their country and were fighting well for their country. They were uh, civil rights activists. So they brought in the press to, to view the, the battlefield and to, uh, to interview Johnson and uh, Roberts. And as a result, for a while, Henry Johnson was the most famous American soldier uh, in France. And he was used as a symbol of, uh, 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 of uh, the courage of, of, of black troops. The problem was that once the war was over, there's a, raci- there's a racial reaction mm-hmm. against both the immigrants and the blacks. There's a desire to put them back in their place. And uh, Johnson, in particular, who's a a celebrity, goes on a speaking tour, and he's very critical of the way that the regiment was treated by by whites once they got back to the American army at uh, at the end of the war. Uh, And he's hounded by the military-industrial department, which is, in effect, a kind of FBI uh, he's denied a, uh, speaking platforms. He's uh, jailed for a while for wearing his uniform uh, six months after he was discharged. Uh, he's too crippled to work, and he's uh, driven into um, uh, alcoholism uh, and kind of drifts away from his family. It's a, a, tra- a very tragic, uh, very tragic story. 
but there is no American medal. Uh, the American army does not want to give him an award. It claims that um, he was with the French army, not the American army, uh, even though that's uh, a, a, it's a bureaucratic trick because other soldiers in a similar situation did get medals. Um, and in the uh, 1920s, the army uh, undertook a all uh, uh, black uh, uh, to, to discredit the idea that blacks could be effective mm. soldiers. And Not going to be any uh, mm. uh, follow-on to the attempt to get Johnson a medal. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're speaking to Richard Slotkin, Professor Emeritus of English and American Studies at Wesleyan University, author of Lost Battalions, The Great War and the Crisis of American Nationality. Uh, let's uh, fast forward now, decades later. Again, we mentioned that Henry Johnson received or became the recipient posthumously of the Medal of Honor. Uh, joining us on the phone now is Lewis Wilson. He's retired New York Army National Guard member. He served as a command sergeant major. Uh, Lewis, welcome to the show. Uh, good morning. Thank you for having me. So you you come into the story in a very interesting way. You served, what, 39 years with the New York Army National Guard. You were chosen to accept this Medal of Honor on behalf of Henry Johnson. What was that like? And talk about um, how you got there. Well, uh, I spent 39 years uh, in the Army, in the New York Army National Guard, and uh, I rose to the position of Command Sergeant Major in the state, the senior enlisted leader uh, in New York. And... Uh, it was an honor to receive that phone call from the adjutant general uh, who I worked for that the Army was looking to award the Medal of Honor to, to Henry Johnson. But since there was no primary next of kin, they thought, well, we'd give it to the National Guard and who would be the person to select that. So the adjutant general from New York said, I got the perfect person, my senior enlisted leader. And it just so happens that I was sitting in position at that time uh, in Albany and uh, received a phone call from the adjutant general and uh, and he is the executive to the governor here, and uh, say, hey, you've been recommended to receive, and we'll know in a few days later. So it was a big honor for me that uh, for you know to receive that for Henry Johnson. Did you know of Henry Johnson before that phone call? Uh, I I did, and I lived in the Rochester, New York area, and I was, my last assignment was in the Albany area as a state enlisted leader, and his history and all about the Henry Johnson story is all told in the. Mm-hmm. Uh, Albany area because of where he lived uh, in his later years and, uh, and before he joined the service. And, you know, there are schools, uh, roads, and, and statues all about Henry Johnson. And when I was, uh, uh, my duty went to Albany, that's when I picked up on a lot of Henry Johnson, and, and I started researching myself about him. So tell us about that journey to D.C., and, and again, what was it like to be in that room receiving that Medal of Honor in um, for the for the, the valor that Henry Johnson showed so many years ago? Well, I started out with, you know, the research and just learning about and, and hearing about Henry Johnson. And, uh, and and you look at where he came from, you know, from North Carolina to, all, to the Albany area, maybe for a better life and, 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 and a different way of living. And, and at that time, the war was going on in Europe. And, and then you, you, I look at him as a person who wants to be part of a of the big picture, a person who uh, 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 want to get in the fight, a person who want to prove himself, and you know to show what you know blacks can do also. And then you, you read about him and and the history of joining uh, the unit in New York City, and then going over you know the ups and downs and, and overcoming, and you know the resiliency that he and others uh, displayed. 
And then, you know, I, 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 my next uh, uh, point is that he was a person that, you know, you look at leaders are made, born or made. In my opinion, he was a youngster who, who was uh, made a leader uh, that night when he was, uh, you know, fighting, you know, fighting for his life and his, uh, and as we say in the army, his battle buddy, mm-hmm. and his, uh, and his unit. Uh, Lewis Wilson, you you served a long career again in the uh, New York Army National Guard. You're African American. When you look back at the history of of blacks, of immigrants uh, that have served, of Puerto Ricans who served in World War One, and how they were treated after the war, I mean, how have you? How do you reflect on that? And how have we moved forward? Uh, it, it's kind of disappointing back in the day, but I do understand, and I, and I do know, uh, I am from the South, and and. I was not exposed to the, you know, the old Jim Crow laws and the issues that happened way back then. And and, but uh, as Henry Johnson, just being a member, you know, he joined the military during wartime. I joined the military during peacetime, but I did go to war. And I can relate to him in his training. I can relate to him in his duties. I can relate to him, you know, in, in a combat role. I can relate to him, you know, as he returned home. And uh, and it's. I have to say, personally, it's a shame that a lot of our military uh, people are not recognized for the worth that they do uh, for this country. And Henry Johnson was a person that, uh, to show himself and prove himself, uh, you know, he was born in this country to fight for this country. You know, as President Dave, that, uh, you know, I wore, you know, the American flag on my uniform. And, you know, and I think back to Henry Johnson and others, uh, uh that, which, you know, he's, like, to me, a personal hero. That's Lewis Wilson, retired New York Army National Guard. He received, uh, on behalf of Henry Johnson, uh, the the Medal of Honor uh, when President Obama was in office. Uh, Thank you for sharing a little bit of that story, Lewis. We appreciate it. Thank you. I wanted to go back to historian Richard Slotkin, who joins us by phone, Professor Emeritus of English and American Studies at Western University. Uh, Richard, we just have a couple of minutes, but remind us again when these men came back home. You told us a little bit about Henry Johnson's uh, story, uh, but this uh, this idea that they would be seen on equal footing as full Americans, that was not realized for some time. No, it was not. In, in fact, in, in, uh, the reaction was quite sharp against both blacks and immigrants. Uh, the, there, there were two, uh, there were two legal uh, tests. Uh, the uh, the one piece of civil rights legislation that uh, the leadership of the black community was looking for to come out of uh, this period of service was uh, the, uh, the an anti-lynching bill uh, to make lynching a federal crime, uh, and uh, that was uh, the the Congress uh, turned that uh, turned that down. Um, uh, the uh, southern, southern congressman stood up and said that lynching was needed. To, uh, to to prevent black men from raping white women, and that was the end of the story so far as the uh, Congress was concerned. For the immigrants, uh, the key issue was the Johnson-Reed immigration quota bill. Uh, in those days, uh, they we would what we would call nationalities they described as races. So Jews are a race, Romanians are a race, Germans are a race, Poles are a race, and so on. And uh, they adopted a racial quota system to limit a new immigration to the ex- to the uh, to the level of the population uh, percentage of the population these groups had had in 1900. That is, 
before the 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 uh, the, the great wave of uh, of, of, of immigration uh, began, and uh, this not only led to the restriction of immigration and and would for example. Uh, prevent the U.S. from taking in uh, Jews who were trying to get out of Nazi Germany uh, in the 30s. Uh, it not only did that, but it was a signal that the American government for the first time was recognizing uh, a certain class of whites as belonging to a different race and legitimating discrimination against them on a racial basis. Richard, um, unfortunately, we're almost out of time, but I do want to thank you for joining us. Richard Slotkin, Professor Emeritus of English and American Studies at Western University. Read his book, so fascinating, Lost Battalions, The Great War and the Crisis of American Nationality. We're going to take a break. We're going to talk more about the centennial of World War I after this quick break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, we've taken the show on the road to Connecticut's Park City. On the next Where We Live, we'll listen back to our conversation at Beehive Bridgeport. You'll meet some of the city's leading activists and lawmakers and get a taste of local history, politics, and Bridgeport-made gin. That's tomorrow. Today, where we live, in 2015, state residents were asked to participate in a digital archive project to mark the 100th anniversary of the U.S. entering into World War I. The Connecticut State Library launched the project in partnership with the Connecticut Digital Archive and the National World War I Centennial Commission. Uh, joining our in-studio right now is Ken Wigan, Connecticut State Librarian. Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. It's a pleasure to be here. Also in studio with us is uh, Edward Gutierrez, history professor at Northeastern University, uh, who wrote Doughboys on the Great War, How American Soldiers Viewed Their Military Experience. Uh, we learned earlier that Edward relied on a lot of records at the Connecticut hmm. State Library, all thanks to... Uh, State Librarian George Goddard. Tell us about him. Well, George Goddard was State Librarian from 1900 to 1936. And he was a man, I think, that had great vision. Um, our State Library and Supreme Court building, uh, he was a uh, driving force behind getting that building. And suddenly he had a very large building he wanted to fill. But I, I think he understood the value uh, and of what was going on, the, the immensity of uh, the war effort and what it might mean for the state. So he really uh, drove um, the idea that we needed to collect everything that was coming out of, whether it was the State Council on War um, and all the other things going on in the state. So he, he really uh, was a driving force. And I think he always said that it was so that um, we, he was doing this for our children and our children's children. So I think he had this greater vision that um, someday we'd want to go back and look at this record. I mentioned the Digital Archive Project. How have state residents responded over the last two years? It's been fabulous. We've had over 100 people um, bring forward some of their um, relatives' letters, diaries, photographs. Um, it's been amazing. I participated in one, so I got a firsthand view of you know the, the enthusiasm of the people bringing them in, the uh, understanding that you know, maybe their their kids uh, aren't as interested in this, but they want to have a safe place for it, or maybe they just want to learn a little bit about how to take better care of what they have. Uh, we want to take a uh, we wanted to take a call, but I I think there's someone on the line who uh, con contributed to this project. Uh, Rick from <laughs> Guilford. Rick, are you on the line? I'm here. Hi, Rick. So I understand that you're a Guilford resident and the grand nephew of a Connecticut World War One soldier. Tell us about your great uncle. Well, you know, it's very interesting. My uh, sister and I found uh, a treasure trove of letters um, after my father passed away. Um, we were cleaning out his basement, and there was this, um, you know, large manila envelope filled with 
something bulging, and then we look through, and there are all these letters in there, and I'd say 30, maybe three dozen letters. Uh, it turned out there were letters, uh, many of them from the battlefields of France to my grandfather, from his brother, Paul Maynard. My grandfather was Glenn Maynard. Um, and it was kind of an amazing find, and we were kind of read through these letters. And um, um, for me, what's very interesting is I, I learned so much about this 21-year-old who actually was killed the last day of the war. Um, and interestingly, in the Look magazine in 1964, in August of 1964, there was an article about the 50th anniversary of the beginning of the war, even though, you know, of course, the U.S. wasn't in it at that, that time. Uh, but there was this article about World War One, and my brother, who was in high school at the time, was looking through the uh, article, and there's this uh, picture of a cross, uh, a tombstone cross in Meuse Argonne Cemetery in France, and it was Paul H. Maynard, um, November 11th, 1918. And so my brother asked my father, whose name also is Paul, and he said, hey, is this, this guy related to us? And my father wasn't sure, so he asked his father, my grandfather, and uh, he said, yeah, wow, that's my brother. <laughs> so uh, this, um, this Look Magazine article, you know, of all the thousands of people who were uh, killed in that war, um, his, his name is featured there. And the caption said, for many, the last day of the war was the last day of life. And so interestingly, from that, uh, you know, we find these letters in uh, 2010, um, and that generated a, a, there's a, a documentary film that's created by Mike Shipman at the American Battle Monuments Commission, a uh, 24-minute documentary called Never Forgotten, and it features Paul Maynard in, in the letters that I have. And so it's pretty pretty remarkable, um, pretty remarkable journey to this point. Tell us more about what were in those letters. I understand he was on the front lines for 21 days. What did he describe to his family? You know, um, by reading these letters, this is what, what's so important to me about these letters and the fact that, you know, we're going to get them digitized, and some of them have been so far. Uh, it tells the story of him. It, we, I learned a lot about his character. Uh, I felt like I got to know this young 21-year-old um, uh, reading through these letters. And so some of the highlights that I would say, um, uh, he was an innocent farm boy. I mean, the, the, the way he wrote was uh, with such innocence. And, for example, uh, in one of his letters, he mentioned that German prisoners were being paraded by, and, and they were grinning. And he said, it makes me want to jump on them sometimes. <laughs> you know, it's not like, well, I want to kick their butt. He said, I want to jump on them. Um, you know, where he talked about some battles, uh, he wrote to my grandfather, and he said, you probably read in the paper by now uh, how we really trimmed those Germans. You know, we trimmed them. Uh, but one really interesting one was that he, uh, in a letter to my grandfather, he said, um, I, I heard there's a rumor back home that I smoke. Tell mom that I'm still the same fellow that I was that I left, and tell dad I'm, I'm not old enough for smoking. <laughs> so here he is fighting battles, and, uh, you know, he's worried about people thinking he smokes. Um, innocent farm boy, he was a patriot. Uh, he uh, enlisted pretty early. He wanted to be in one of the first waves that went over there, and um, and he, he, he was. Um from uh, the, uh, he was in the 102nd uh, Division or Regiment from uh, the Torrington, uh, New Haven area. Um, so he was a patriot, wanted to get in there early. He was a loving son. Uh, he would write letters back after being in some intense battles. He'd be back in the, uh, from the trenches a little bit and, um, you know, asking, uh, uh, how's the potato crop doing back home, you know? Or he'd say, Dad, did you get my allotment? So he was sending money back home. I, I'm guessing his family was not very well off. But he's sending money back home, trying to take care of them while he's out there fighting, in, you know, in these intense battles. Mm -hmm. 
Um, another thing I saw, he trusted God, and he mentioned God many times in his letters, and one of his quotes was that uh, um, if anybody needs God, it's a soldier, and I've had many such occasions where I needed him. Um, you know, again, he's been some real significant battles. And I'd say he was a hero. Um, he was gassed in um, March of 1918, spent about two and a half months in a hospital, uh, wrote prolifically from the hospital, and uh, kept saying how he couldn't wait to get back on the battlefield, uh, you know, to be there with his, his um, fellow soldiers. And um, uh, and then he, the, the incident of his death, which was the last day of the war, he... Um, uh, he was promoted to sergeant, and, and this happened like in a week, because we have a letter um, dated November 4th where he was a, a corporal. But in his, um, the uh, telegram that t- talked about his uh, being severely wounded, he was a sergeant. So I, my, my only guess is that they were losing so many guys uh, at that point. They said, Maynard, you're in charge. <laughs> so he's in a, uh, a trench, um, a foxhole, uh, a bomb hole, I guess, crater, um, he was a, a rifleman, a sharpshooter, and uh, they had a very important role in that war. And uh, so he and another soldier were in this crater. Uh, he ordered his guys to fall back while he protected, uh, provided cover for them. And uh, he and the other soldier never got out, and they were found dead in that crater. Mm-hmm. So he died the last day of the war, on November 11th, 1918. The only thing, you know, um, I didn't hear much about him from my grandfather growing up. The only story I remember is um, he talked about they went to the train station when all the guys were coming home, uh, my grandfather and his parents, and, um, you know, they're seeing everybody coming off the train and hugs and kisses and, you know, everybody, great joy, and um, Paul Maynard wasn't there. Um, they didn't know that he was he was wounded or killed. Um, they got a telegram uh, in early December uh, that said he was severely wounded in action on the last day of the war. It wasn't until the following May, uh, like six months later, that they got a letter that he was, um, well, it didn't officially say he died, but it said he was never seen again. Uh, so, I mean, you know, he was dead. But all that time, all those six months, they were hoping that he was in a hospital, maybe wounded and recovering somewhere, and uh, always having that hope. And, of course, it didn't, didn't pan out the way they hoped. Well, Rick Maynard, thank you so much for sharing the story of your great uncle, uh, Paul Maynard. And I understand some of these letters are digitized in the Connecticut State Library collection. Uh, Can we? They are, Lucy. And this is a great example of the kind of information that's been coming forward. I think when Goddard was um, focused on collecting, there was a lot of government information, government files to be collected. But very few people, I think, uh, were coming forward with their own personal stories. People came home from the war. They put their letters in a box. They put them up in the attic. And, it, you know, I know my own father was in World War II. He didn't talk much about the war until very late in his life. And I think what this project's been doing is enabling us to, to get these personal stories and get them on the record as well. And it really broadens um, people's understanding of the war. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we've been talking about World War I. Uh, today marks the centennial uh, when the U.S. entered uh, World War I, the Great War. Uh, Ken Wiggin is Connecticut State Librarian. He's in studio. Also, uh, Edward Gutierrez, who wrote the book Doughboys on the Great War, How American Soldiers Viewed Their Military Experience. Um, Edward, when we started the show, you said that um, people often forget about World War I, mm-hmm. and you wrote this book for a reason. What do you think will be... 
I guess, the legacy in a couple of years. Centennial, lots of attention. There's going to be an event um, later in Connecticut um, to commemorate this anniversary. But do you, how do you feel people will think of the war in a couple of years? Will that still be in the past? Uh, unfortunately, yes. I think it's very difficult to do a 180, a cultural 180, a kind of national identity 180. Uh, I think that uh, in a few years, we'll just, it'll be, go back to really what it was. I hope this will change some things, uh, uh, the documentaries and, and uh, the projects that, that Ken and the State Library are working on and, and scholars like me trying to, to change that narrative. But I think it's very difficult to kind of make an, an entire nation say, oh, yes, this is actually relevant, this is actually important. Uh, maybe if there's a really great World War One film by Steven Spielberg, something like that, I think, because, again, film is really, uh, if you just look at Saving Private Ryan, for example, what that did for World War Two. I should mention um, Richard Slotkin, who joined us earlier, and I believe you are both featured in the American mm-hmm. Experience documentary, The Great War, premiering on PBS on April 10th, so our listeners can watch out for that. And, Ken, before we end the show... Where can uh, residents find more about the project, but also to maybe see parts of this collection that you've, you and others, others have worked on? Well, if they Google Remembering World War I, uh, they'll find our website, which is focused just on, on this project. But they can also go to the State Library's website. Um, but if you come into the State Library right now, um, we're on uh, 231 Capitol Avenue. Um, the building's not hard to miss. Mm-hmm. But in Memorial Hall, um, we have several exhibits going on right now, materials that have been donated as part of uh, the digitization project, but also some work we've done uh, with Chris Radio. Uh, we did a project to uh, make some of this material available to the blind. Uh, so we've had recordings of a lot of this. So, And, and I think it's important that... Um, the war had a great impact on on Connecticut, and Connecticut changed radically. And I think a lot of our efforts over the next two years are not just to commemorate the war, but to talk about and see how Connecticut changed. I think that's the most significant thing we're trying to do. And just because the centennial is today, you're still going to be collecting? Oh, certainly. Today, um, we have an event. Uh, the governor's coming over at 11 o'clock. Uh, we have, uh, it's really a commemoration of the U.S. entry into the war, but there's so much more. Mm-hmm. Uh, This is going to go on for another two years. I want to thank Ken Wiggin, Connecticut State Librarian. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Lucy. Also, Edward Gutierrez, history professor at Northeastern University, a Hartford native, I should mention, and author of the book Doughboys on the Great War, How American Soldiers Viewed Their Military Experience. Uh, We just have just under a minute, uh, Edward, but are you going to be doing anything more with uh, writing about World War I, or is this it? Yeah, I got uh, another one I'm working on right now to kind of, again, to, to your great question, Lucy, about the uh, the lost generation. So I hope to continue uh, to try to, with uh, another uh, book, to try to, I hope, change that idea, that kind of misconception about the war. Thank you so much again for joining us today. Our show is produced by Jeff Tyson and Lydia Brown. Our WMPR executive producer is Katie Tularski. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.